Give ear to the word of God. Psalm 81, it says, To the choir master, according to the Ketit of, of Asaph, and he writes, Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule for the, of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah, Selah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, speaking of... of, uh, Finest of wheat and honey from the rock, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. Amen. Well, this, uh, this psalm, Psalm 81, opens with a call to worship, instructing God's people in verse 1 to, to sing aloud to God our strength, to shout for joy to the God of, of Jacob. The Lord also gives us, thankfully, their reasons for that joyous duty. He doesn't just say, praise me. He gives reasons why we have cause to, to praise him, primarily that he was the one who had rescued his people and redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. Not a small thing. Like, and again, if you're familiar with your Old Testament very much, the, the exodus from Egypt is kind of the, the, the major salvation event of the entire Old Testament. It is, if I can use this for an analogy, it's kind of the cross of Christ as it were, as far as importance in the Old Testament. Christ's cross is the ultimate thing. It's a thing that all these things pointed forward to. But you'll find in the scriptures in the Old Testament especially, the writers constantly pointing back to the Exodus, that God and his prophets are constantly saying, remember what I did in redeeming you from slavery. Christ on the cross redeemed us from slavery to sin in an even greater way. But that's what, that's a, that's what that Exodus was a picture uh, so God gives his people throughout scripture and even in this psalm that as a, a reason to praise God. He mentions the Exodus in verses 4 through 7 as well as explicitly in verse 10. And this, this psalm uh, urges us to do something and urge the people in the psalmist day to do something that we don't often easily do. And that is he urges us to learn the lessons of history, to learn the lessons of the history of God's dealings with his people in the past and to learn from those lessons and take those lessons to heart. As Paul says in Romans 15:4, a familiar passage, he says, For whatever was written in former days, in the Old Testament, 
was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So that's true not just of what we think of as the doctrinal or didactic portions of the Old Testament of scripture, but also of the historical portions as well. You know, you, you'll find as you go through your New Testament, as it, as it refers back to and quotes the Old Testament so often as it does, that very often the writers of the New Testament, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, build their doctrines, establish their doctrines and their calls to us to obey Christ as a result of the gospel, not just on what we might think of as doctrinal passages, but on historical passages in the Old Testament. So there is a lot of theology, so to speak, in those historical accounts throughout the Old and New Testament. So um, we should, when we read these historical accounts in the, in the scriptures, don't just settle for kind of familiarizing yourself uh, with the facts of what happened in the past, as important as that may be. Take the time to ponder what those things have to teach us about God and about God's dealings with us as his redeemed people. So don't just be a student of history. Learn the lessons of that history. As the old saying goes, I don't know who first came up with this, but you've probably heard this a number of times. They say those who don't know their history are doomed to do what? Repeat it. You know, and, and if anything, our day, our particular age, is an age of, of simply disregarding the past. We live in an arrogant age of hubris, a foolish age, where people think everything that happened in the past has nothing to teach us. We are far too modern, postmodern, whatever, whatever word you want to use. Uh, we think that the world was created yesterday and that we are the ones that have all the, the knowledge and wisdom. Uh, untrue. We should be looking at history because there's a lot to teach us from it. Well, here in Psalm 81, the Lord compares the condition of his people in the psalmist day with those who had lived back in the days of Moses long before when God tested his people, he says, at the waters of Meribah. He mentions that in verse 7, that the account of that incident in Meribah was found in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. We looked at that in the men's breakfast yesterday. Those people, the people of Israel in those days, refused to listen to God's voice. And so in verse 12 of the psalm, what does God say he did? They refused to listen to him, so he gave them over in the stubbornness of their hearts to listen to their own counsels. It's almost like God saying, Oh, you think you, you think you know everything, do you? Okay, have it your way. Let's see how that goes. And that's exactly what God did. God tells us that this psalm in verse 8, this very psalm is an admonition to the people in the psalmist's day wherein God pleads with his stubborn people to listen to him, to repent from idolatry. And if they would just listen to him and walk in his ways, they would be filled and satisfied in him. That, that's a summary of this psalm. Stop going your own way. Listen to me. Walk in my ways and you will be truly satisfied in such a way that all the idols of this world, the false gods of this world, can never begin to do because they're, they're false gods. They can't do anything. So God in, in this psalm is also calling us today to cast off our idols, whatever they might be. If we too would listen to the voice of our God, the God who redeemed us by his son's death on the cross, who redeemed us from our slavery to sin, um, then we too would see the Lord mighty in battle, fighting our battles for us, fighting against all of our enemies, and then we too would know great blessing and satisfaction 
in our God. Well, the psalm opens in verses 1 through 3 with a call to worship. It's a call to praise. Verses 1 through 3, the psalmist says, Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine and the, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. Sounds loud, doesn't it? We don't have, some churches have drum sets, like we don't have that. Uh, but, but tambourine, lyre, all these things um, sounds, sounds pretty boisterous and, and uh, joyous. Now think about this. Judging by the circumstances that are associated with this and the surrounding psalms, you know, book three of the psalms, this middle section, it's a lot about God's chastisements on his people. In fact, a lot of it has to do with the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities on the horizon. Some of the psalms we've already looked at, they're not always in exact historical chronological order, so to speak. Some of the psalms we've looked at recently have been about the temple being destroyed. And the psalmist saying, oh, Lord, like they've come in, they've raised it to the ground. They've, they've lit your synagogues on fire like the Babylonians and Assyrians had done that. So this is, this is not the, the high point of Israel and Judah's history. And yet look what God tells them to do. Sing. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Even in the midst of all that, God was to be praised and rejoiced in. And yet, even so, God calls them to repentance and worship in spite of all, and maybe in some senses because of the chastisements they were going under nationally and the chastisements, the increasing ones that were showing up on the horizon, probably the Assyrian army in this particular case that was getting ready to take the northern kingdom's exile in exile to Assyria. God calls them to repentance, but he also calls them to worship, which is actually not that unrelated to the repentance. They really weren't worshiping God as they should because they were still in their sins and rebellion. So in the midst of all those things, God would have his people still worship him in spirit and in truth. And even then, even in the midst of all these trials, his people needed to worship God. And that goes for us, too. When you're going through the deep waters, we need to worship God. We need to remind ourselves of who God is, of who our God is, and the great things that he has done for us uh, in Jesus Christ. And so they and we are also, they were not just, you know, it's one thing if God had said, sing aloud to God. Would have been perfectly right to say so. He doesn't just say that. What does he say in verse 1? Sing aloud to God, what? Our strength. We're singing when we're singing about and to God and reminding ourselves that God himself is our strength. So kind of embedded within the call and command to worship is part of the reason for that worship. They needed to worship God and remind themselves that he, that is God, their God, the Lord, and not the idols of the world, the idols of the nations, God was their strength. They had been implicitly, according to this psalm, looking to the idols and false gods of the nations for their strength. They were probably looking to those foreign nations for military you know, backup, so to speak, to help them against the Assyrians, uh, and that, that wasn't going to work. In fact, God chastises them for it. They aren't to depend upon the foreign nations and their gods. They were to depend, depend on God himself. Now, isn't that part of the problem with our idols, whatever they may be, uh, at the time, do we not invest idols by definition kind of with a power to save or help that they just don't have? 
an, an idol, you know, I think it's the prophet Jeremiah, he compares the idols of the nations, the idols that the people of Israel sometimes worshipped, to a scarecrow in a field. It might scare the crows away, but it's not going anywhere. It has to be, I'm paraphrasing, it has to be carried to and fro because it can't walk. It can't talk. It can't do anything. It can't help anybody who depends upon it. We are called to worship with Psalm 96. And look at what Psalm 96 verses 4 to 5 says. It's amazing how many times idolatry is addressed in the Psalms. It says, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are what? Worthless idols. And then he adds, But the Lord made the heavens. The idols can't do anything. It's, it's the height of foolishness and rebellion. It's the height of self-delusion to think these idols are going to do anything to help. But God, our God, made the heavens. When you look up at night, you know, like Psalm, I love Psalm 8. Psalm 8, the psalmist David says, When I look up into the night sky and see the, the moon and the stars that you've created, what does he say? What is man that you're mindful of him? He realizes how big God is, so to speak, and how small he is and how great God is and how powerful God is. Our God made the heavens. The gods of the nations are less than nothing. They can't do anything. They're worthless. He doesn't just say they're idols. He reminds, it's, it's redundant, I know. They're worthless idols. All idols are, by definition, vain and worthless. Then there the psalmist reminds us of the, the futility of false gods and idols, that they are worthless. But not, not God. Our God made the heavens. There's nothing that he cannot do. He and not the false gods of the nations is our strength and our shield and our great reward. Now, I hope that you will not neglect, even though you're here this morning, so you're not neglecting it today, but I hope that you don't neglect the gathering together of God's people. Hebrews 10.25 has something to say about that. It tells us not to neglect the gathering of the saints. And I hope that when we do gather together as a church or for Bible study, that you will sing aloud to God our strength, even as the psalmist tells us to do. One of our attenders recently told me that someone in her former church literally told her not to sing. They, they didn't like her voice. And I was just flabbergasted that somebody would be so cruel to say something like that. God says, sing aloud. Don't mutter. Don't mumble. Don't worry about the person next to you. If you're hurting their ears, sing aloud to God. Even as the psalmist tells us uh, to do, there's something about singing praise to God that stirs and is meant, I think, to stir up faith, hope, and love in Christ Jesus. <coughs> Saying something is one thing. Singing it is something else entirely. It stirs up our faith and love in Christ. It reminds us that we have reason to rejoice in our God. Well, the second thing is in verses 4 to 10, even though he's already kind of addressed it a little bit in verse 1, is the Lord gives us reason, abundant reasons or cause to praise him, to sing his praise. First, it's a command. It's our duty to worship God and praise his name. Not only does he call and command us to do so in verse 1, but in verse 4 God says, it is a statute in Israel, a rule for the God of Jacob. God would have us gather and praise him. Worship is certainly a privilege for us to do and to gather for it, but it is also and this is a word we don't tend to like, but it shouldn't be the case. It is our duty. And it's a duty that should not be neglected. Now, it's a duty for our own good. 
But the word duty should not be a bad word in a Christian's vocabulary. Our duties are blessings. God, God doesn't instruct us for things for our harm, but for our good. But secondly, and most importantly, the Lord reminds them of his great work of salvation on their behalf. And he does that because that's a mighty reason, a great cause for praise. Look at verses 5 through 7. He says, he, it's God, he made it a decree in Joseph when he went over, out over the land of Egypt. That word could mean could be translated Passover, might be a big hint of what he's talking about, but when he went out over the land of Egypt, I hear a language I had not known, and God says, I relieved your shoulder of the burden, your hands were freed from the basket, in distress you called, and I, what? I delivered you, I answered you in the secret place of thunder, I tested you at the water's of Meribah, I think what he's doing is in, in kind of encapsulating in very short form the exodus, the giving of the law, and then the testing at, at the waters of Meribah, all within a verse or two. But he wants to remind them of this broad scope of his work among them in redemptive history. But he says, in distress you called and I delivered you. Remember in the book of Exodus how it starts? There was a king who knew not Joseph, right? And he made their burdens hard. Uh, he took away you know, the straw and all these things. He made their work harder and harder. And what did they do? They cried out to God, and God, what? Heard them. And then God appeared to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. He tells him, he reminds him that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So on the basis of his covenant promise and love for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he heard the voice, the cries of the people of Israel, and he came down and rescued them from slavery in Egypt. So when he talks about going over or passing over the land of Egypt, relieving their shoulder from the burden, he's talking about the burden of the work they were doing. He's talking about them building the things they were building for Pharaoh. He's speaking of redeeming them from slavery in Egypt when they called out and cried out in their distress. And then just in case that wasn't clear enough, verse 10 spells it out in words that are very familiar. We just read these words in Exodus chapter 20 which uh, any, any good Israelite would have heard and recognized these words. He said in verse 10, I am the Lord your God who did what? Who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then he adds, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But he reminds him of the exodus, of his work of salvation. Remember what I did for you people back, way back when. So the first part of that verse is also God's rationale or reason, even as we read this morning, for his people's obedience to his commandments. It's not an accident that God brings that up before he gives the Ten Commandments. We read these same words in, in verses 1 and 2 of Exodus chapter 20. We've already read them this morning. Exodus 21 to 2, it says, And God spoke all these words. The words are the commandments, really. But it says, saying, I am the Lord your God who did what? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then and only then does he start off and say, You shall have no other gods before me. No no idols and whatnot. So it's only then after establishing his relationship to them in covenant, his covenant bond with the people of Israel, having saved them by his grace alone. I mean, they, they had no hope of, of salvation outside of God coming down and rescuing them. He saves them first and then he gives them the law as a perfect rule of righteousness to instruct them in the way that he would have them to live and to show their gratitude for so great a salvation. The shorter catechism, question 44, was right before the part I read this morning. 
um, calls those two verses, Exodus 20, verses 1 to 2, the preface to the Ten Commandments, and it says that it, quote, teaches us that because God is the Lord and our God and our Redeemer, therefore we are bound to keep all of his commandments. In other words, Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, really verse 2, before he gives you the commandments, he gives you the reason why you are to obey them. As a believer in Christ, he gives you the motivation and the cause, the reason for obedience. The first one is that he is the Lord. As creatures created by God, the Lord, we owe him our obedience. We owe it to him as God. Everyone owes God obedience. Everyone, whether they are a believer in Christ or not, owes obedience to God, uh, to his law, and will be judged on that obedience or disobedience. Why? Simply due to the fact that God has made them, that God has given them life, and that God even sustains them. The most bitter, hardened atheist in the world that, that screams at the top of his lungs that there's no God, God made that person. God gave life to that person. God even sustains them in their rebellion, gives them air to breathe, keeps them alive all their days until he decides to judge them or show them grace and conversion. Like the very lungs, the very, the very air they're using to blaspheme God, God gave them that air. They owe God, everyone owes God obedience. How will God judge the nations? By his law, by their disobedience to his law. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, you and I have more reason to obey God's law, not less. Sometimes I think I get the impression that there are many believers, many pastors and theologians that think that the gospel means you have less reason to obey. That it means you can disregard God's law far, far from the truth. And why is that? Because in Christ Jesus, as that says, he is not just our God or the Lord. He is our God and he is our redeemer in Jesus Christ. We are in a gracious covenant relationship with God if we are in Christ and that can only be the case because Christ has redeemed us from our sins by his death in our place on the cross. That is the reason for and motive for praise as well as our reason and motive for obedience to his law because Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law and saved us by his grace alone. We are saved and freed, finally freed up to obey God from the heart because we've been freed from the curse of having broken it broken the law do you struggle to praise God as you should maybe circumstances when things get hard things are hard for most people right now do you struggle more than you should to have joy in Christ and motivation to serve and obey him it can be difficult at times but what what should you do in that case I think this psalm would tell us not just to listen to God although we should do that but Think much on Christ and his cross. If you were a believer in the Old Testament, if you were one of the Israelites, what you should have done was over and over again, and all the feast days should have reminded you of it, right? You should have reminded yourself that God is the Lord who brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We likewise, in a greater sense, should think much on Christ and his cross. Remind yourself, remind one another of God's steadfast love for you in Jesus Christ. And you will have a source of joy that, that enables you to sing. Remember, in, in, uh, Paul was in jail in, Phili in, I almost said Philippians, in the city of Philippi. 
Remember, he was beaten, put in the stocks. I just read this to Luke a little while back. Uh, they're put in the stocks. They're in the middle of the jail, and there's an earthquake, and the jailer, you know, oh, no, he thinks they all left, and he's going to kill himself, and Paul says, no, no, wait, we're all here. But what, what were Paul, and I, I forget who was with him. I think it might have been Silas. What were they doing in prison around midnight? They weren't sleeping. They were singing psalms or hymns and praising God probably keeping the other prisoners awake. Maybe they weren't too happy about it. But, but they were singing. Why? Because they knew the Lord. And Paul wanted to share in Christ's sufferings and know him even in his sufferings, as he says in the book of Philippians, oddly enough. Well, in verse 8, God says something that might kind of take you back a little bit, might startle you. Look at verse 8 there. He says, Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. An admonishment is kind of a stern warning or a reprimand, right? Hear, O my people, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me. You know, we should be open to any sincere admonition from other people, especially those in your family, those in the family of God that is the the church. But when it's God himself admonishing us, that's a whole different thing. And that's exactly what God says here through the psalmist in verse 8. He's admonishing his people. And if that's the case, uh, we need to listen and listen listen well if it's God doing the admonishing. And isn't that basically his, his admonition to his people is just that. Listen to me. That's the whole psalm. Practically, God's saying, just listen to me. Give ear to my voice and follow where I'm leading. Stop going your own way. He, the word for listen in our text or hear is repeated. Maybe you notice it as you were reading through the psalm. It's repeated four times in this short psalm. It's listen, 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 or hear. It's the same word found in what's known as the Shema uh, back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 5. And Shema, uh, it's not a technical term. It's the Hebrew word for hear. It's the first word in the verse. Hear or listen, right? Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 5, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. It's listen. Listen, O Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God, and the idols of the nations aren't him. There's one God. He is one, and... There's no word therefore there, but there might as well be. It, should, it could be therefore, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Now, no doubt the Shema probably came to mind when the people of Israel heard this or sang this psalm. You could say that this psalm's central message is God's call to his people to listen to him and stop going their own way. You know, many uh, faithful Old Testament Jews would memorize the Shema. It was one of the verses that they would memorize. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Well, God is bringing that to mind even now. He's like, this might sound familiar to you, Israelites. Listen. Hear, O Israel. And what were they to listen to God about? And here's the key. Everything, right? But it's not, he's specific here. Uh, One thing in particular stood out, as always does in the history of Israel, and in the history of the church as well, we know in some ways we're no different. And what what was God's issue with them that they had to listen to him and repent of? The same thing it always is. Idolatry. Idolatry. In verse 8, God tells them to listen to him. And then in verse 9, he says, what? There shall be no strange God among you 
you shall not bow down to a foreign god. He's kind of summarizing the first two commandments. Right after saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Right? It's, it's the same thing. He's, he's warning them. He is admonishing them about the sin of idolatry. To bow down to a foreign god or idol is to credit that false god or idol with your salvation. It is to look to or depend upon or have faith in that idol for deliverance in the present and in the future. That is why the next thing God says in verse 10 is, and I'll emphasize it, but I think that's the point. When God says, uh, he, he, he says, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. And then he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. There shall be no foreign gods among you. Why? I'm the Lord your God. I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now back in verse 7, God reminds the people of his testing of them back at the waters of Meribah. That account again is found in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. I'll invite you to read that on your own for your own edification. But it was there at Rephidim where there was no water for the people to drink. If you know the story, we talked about it yesterday at the men's breakfast. It wasn't the first time there was no water to drink. And every time there was no water, the people grumbled. And they complained and they, they threatened. Moses says at one point, I think they're going to stone me. Like, they were just about ready to stone me over this. You know, what do you want me to do here, right? Um, but at Rephidim, there was no water. Did the people trust the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt not that long ago and split a sea in half? No. It says they quarreled with Moses. And in so doing, it, they, they tested the Lord. Moses says they were testing God. It wasn't Moses that they were really quarreling with. It was God himself. They quarreled with Moses. They tested God. And even, even Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, when he was tempted in the wilderness by, by Satan. Remember, he said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. They were putting the Lord their God to the test. And what, what did God have Moses do? Here's the story, right? They were quarreling with Moses. They were ready to stone him. They were testing God. God had Moses take his staff, the same staff he struck the Nile with, right? And he told him to strike the rock or to smite the rock. And what would happen when he did that? He said the Lord himself would stand before him, before Moses, on the rock. When he struck it, and when he did, water came out for all the people to drink. We mentioned it yesterday. Some, some estimates, many of them, say that there were about 2 million people with Moses in, in, the, in the desert, plus their flocks and herds. 2 million people. How big was the rock? I have no idea. But it was, all, it was not a little water fountain. Like There was a lot of water coming out of this rock if it gave water for all of those to drink and back in 1 Corinthians 10:4 Paul says that rock was Christ. The rock that followed them was Christ. It was a picture a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now Moses striking that rock and providing water for the people was a picture or a foreshadowing of the cross of Jesus Christ. As a result of his atonement for our sins in John 7:38 Jesus says Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's, 
If you were an Old Testament Jew and heard that, your mind would have gone to the waters of Meribah. It would have gone to that rock that was struck by Moses. And you think about this. Remember, where was God? Where was the Lord when Moses struck the rock? He tells him, I'm going to be there standing on the rock before you. So that's why it's a picture of the cross. It was Moses' staff, right? A picture, a a weapon of judgment, smiting the rock. Well, who was on the rock? God was on the rock. And God providing for his sinful people. He provided their redemption. He provided their water of life, their rivers of living water uh, back then. So verses 11 to 12, when the psalmist points us back to the stubbornness of the people in Moses' day, he meant to imply to us a comparison to the people in his own day and in our day as well. And what had God done back then? Because God's people refused to listen or hear him and submit to him, verse 11, verse 12 says that God, quote, gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own commands. So why does, why does the psalmist bring up the waters of Meribah here in this, in this psalm? He wants them to learn the lesson of history and learn the lesson of God's testing them at Meribah. There was a lesson that people had to learn there, and they needed to relearn it after the fact. The people in the psalmist day and the people in our own day as well need to read that text, think about it, and learn the lessons of not grumbling against God and trusting in God's provision. And if we don't, just like they didn't, what's the result? God will give them over to their own stubbornness and the counsel of their own will to follow. Sometimes God's most severe judgments in this life consist in simply giving people over to their own ways. Giving people over to their own sinful ways and rebellion. Because somebody has said this, and I don't remember who it was. I think it was one of the Puritans, but you can't quote me on it because I can't recall who it was. But they say sin is its own worst punishment outside of hell itself. Sin is its own worst punishment. To be given over to sin is to be given over to one's own punishment. Just like obedience, it's also said by another, another Puritan as well. It might be the same one. Obedience is its own reward, and it carries many blessings with it, but we don't think of it that way. We think of it as a burden, as if God's trying to spoil our fun. But, you know, it's as if God is saying here, you want to serve, serve a false God that's helpless to save? You want to do things your own way? Well, go ahead. Let's see how that works out for you, but be careful what you wish for. You want to go your own way? Fine. You know, as parents, maybe you've ever done that sometimes. Nothing serious, but you want them to learn from their mistakes. Sometimes when they're stubborn, you let them make a mistake to show them, hey, maybe your old dad might know a thing or two. Maybe, what's the old saying? You know, I know a thing or two because I've seen a thing or two. You know, been there, done that, got the T-shirt. Learn from my mistake and it'll make your life much more easy than it is learning by your own mistakes. Think about God giving someone over. It brings to mind Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read it at length uh, for there's so much in it. But Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed, present tense, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Everybody knows that there is a God. For although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for what? Images, idols, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, here it is, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, that is idolatry, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He says it again. For this reason, God gave them up. There it is again. God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The sin itself was the due penalty. God gave them over. He says it twice, but wait, he says it one more time. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up or gave them over. Three times he says it. To a debased mind, not just the actions, but the mind, to do what ought not to be done, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. In the middle of that whole list, Paul adds that. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's God giving them over. Is there a better picture, a snapshot of the awful condition of our country right now than that passage? I would suggest that there's not. That's a description of our land in many ways. Awful, awful to think of it. But that's God gave them up or gave them over to their sins. That is an awful, terrifying thought. But God does it, and it's part of his wrath that is being revealed against all unrighteousness. Why? Because they all know God exists. Everybody knows that God exists. Why? Because God has shown it to them. Three times Paul hammers home the truth with those words that God gave them up or gave them over. And I think we see much evidence of this very giving over in our own land and even in the church today. Many churches are evidencing God giving them over. You know, in our own denomination, the PCA, there are some, some in office who believe that a homosexual man is fit and qualified to serve as a pastor or an elder in God's church so long as he is celibate. Long as he's restraining the outward act, they say it's fine. Is this the teaching of God's word? Are we listening to God? As Psalm 81, as God admonishes us to do in Psalm 81. May God grant repentance so that many will once again listen to God, especially in the church and walk in his ways. Well, the psalm closes with one more thing, and it's a beautiful promise of God's blessing. 
and his gracious blessing and reward for all those who will turn from their own ways and listen to God once again. Because God's ways are good. And it's for our good always that we walk in God's ways, as Deuteronomy 6.24 says. But listen to God's fatherly plea and gracious promise at the end of the psalm in verses 13 to 16. He says, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. And what would he do if they did? I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. He's like, you're worried about those Assyrians? That's not who you should be thinking about. You're worried about the Babylonians, depending who it's dealing with there. Whatever, whatever earthly fear you're having as a nation or as an individual, whatever things you're worried about, I would take care of it. You don't have to make an unholy alliance with Egypt to protect you from Assyria. I'll do the fighting for you if you would just listen. If you would, oh, that my people would listen to me and Israel would walk in my ways. Those two things go together. If you're not walking in God's ways, you're not listening to him. You can read your Bible all day till you're blue in the face. If you're not walking in God's ways, you're not really listening to him. You're just reading a book. You're not reading God's word with faith. Isn't that really what they and we really wanted in the first place? But they sought it in the world's way by serving idols rather than trusting in God and listening to him. If we in the church today would learn to do that, to listen to God and to walk in his ways and to trust him, how different might things be in our churches and in our, in our country? All of our schemes, all of our plans, our programs, our worldly entertainment disguised as worship, our worldly compromise with sin, our watering down of the gospel and refusing to preach repentance as we are supposed to do. All those things that we have done as churches to try to bring people in and, and kind of trick people into the kingdom, uh, all they've done is more harm than good. They have not resulted in the salvation and, and transformation of sinners. If we would just turn back and listen to God, how greatly might God bless the preaching of his word? How greatly might God bring true repentance and restoration to our land once again and even restore the years the locust has eaten? God can do that. God can restore a land if we would just listen and repent. The Lord himself would fight our battles and subdue our enemies, even the enemies of the cross. The Lord himself would feed us with the finest of wheat and honey. The promised land, remember the promised land, what was it always described as? A land flowing with milk and honey just like the water flowed from the rock milk and honey would be like it's a picture right it wasn't literal rivers of milk or honey but it would be that kind of a thing abundance of blessing uh, an abundance of the, of the best things if God's people would just trust him and walk in his ways and where would that honey come from according to the psalmist I found this to be it kind of jumped off the page at me it's, it's like a mixed metaphor he said it's with honey from the rock that God would satisfy his people. That's the same word for rock that's used back in Exodus 17 when, when God told Moses to strike the rock. God's purposes for us in Christ are overflowing with every spiritual blessing. He is the source. It's in him, Paul says, that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. May we learn to listen to God always and learn to walk in his ways to him 
be all the glory. Amen.